Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings Books and Music. In today's episode, a recording taken from best-selling journalist Anton Lowenstein discussing his latest book, The Palestine Laboratory. This book demonstrates in depth how Israel has become a leader in developing spying technology and defence hardware that fuels some of the globe's most brutal conflicts. Anton Lowenstein was interviewed at our Carlton store by Jeff Sparrow, a writer, journalist and broadcaster. Here's Sparrow to introduce. All right, well, let's get started. Lovely to see so many people here. It's like a Taylor Swift concert. (laughs) I'm sure Anthony needs no introduction to people here. He wears many hats. He's a documentary filmmaker. He's a writer. He's a journalist. He's an agitator. His books include My Israel Question, The Blogging Revolution, Pills, Powder and Smoke. And the one that we'll be talking about tonight is the Palestine Laboratory, which is on sale as you head out towards the door. So can you please make him welcome? All right, Antti, nice to see you in Melbourne. Thank you for having me. Let's hop into it. Israel is not alone in having a defence industry. Israel is not alone in exporting weapons. But what distinguishes Israel from other countries is the centrality of Palestinian dispossession to its national Identity. So what is it about that dispossession that makes Palestinians a laboratory for the export of repression? Before I answer that, I just want to first thank everyone for coming. It's an amazing turnout. Thank you, Readings, for having us. And thank you, Scribe, my publisher, for publishing it. And thank you, Jeff, for being here and doing this. You're right. There are a lot of countries that have an arms industry. The US is the world's biggest arms industry. It's the 40% of the world's weapons are sold by our wonderful dear friend Washington. They sell to pretty much anybody, dictatorships, democracies. But the difference with Israel is that it has a permanent occupied people in its backyard and has done so for essentially 56 years since 1967 and 75 years since 1948 of a population which is occupied and essentially allowed, based on Israeli thinking, to be controlled. And over that period, both before the digital revolution and in the current era, there is a massive amount of tools and technologies that Israel is using. So in the modern era, we're talking about spyware, so-called smart walls, facial recognition, biometric data, all those kinds of ways that Israel does 24-7 to manage the occupation, to manage Palestinians. And I use the term manage, obviously, advisor, to control Palestinians. And it's incredibly effective. And I use that term again advisedly. It's effective because Israel has found a way to not just maintain an occupation, but to make it seemingly incredibly popular. Now, on the face of it, that might not be popular in this room, And you might think if, for example, you look at the UN votes on this question, you have pretty much the entire world on one side. And the other side is US, Australia, bless us, Israel, Nauru, Micronesia and Palau. So on the face of it, it seems like, God, the whole world's against Israel. But actually, that's not the reality at all. They're against it maybe at the UN. But in practice, so many of those nations are so desperate and keen to get Israeli technology themselves to surveil and repress their own peoples 
And the fact that Israel tests those technologies on Palestinians, that so-called battle test, that that's the marketing tool and that's how they sell it. And it works. Okay, you say in the book that one can't overstate the significance of defence exports to the Israeli economy today and you quote one expert who talks about, who says something along the lines, we moved away from oranges to hand grenades. So that suggests a process. I wonder if you could talk through that. Was Israel exporting repression from the Nakba in 1948 or was it something that developed later? And if it developed later, what were the milestones of that development? I mean, you can't make much money from oranges, frankly. And Israel, fairly soon after its birth in 1948, started developing a domestic arms industry, which initially obviously was to, in its view, protect its own population and even in then repress Palestinians. But pretty much from the 50s, so very soon after Israel's birth, there was a huge expansion of the Israeli defence industry to the point where they started selling and promoting their so-called defence experience to the world. This hugely accelerated after 1967, the Six-Day War, and very soon after that, Israel was clearly promoting itself as saying, we are controlling a Palestinian population in our backyard. We can teach you other nations of the world, how to do the same thing to your population. So in the, in the 60s and particularly in the 70s and onwards until this day, as I show in the book, there's at least 130 countries around the world that Israel has sold defence equipment to, so the majority of nations in the world. And this is everything, I mean, it's virtually impossible to find a horrible regime that Israel has not sold it to. So let me give you a bit of a taste. Everyone from... Chile with, under Pinochet in the 70s to the Guatemalan regime whilst committing genocide in the 80s to Rwanda during, during the genocide in the 90s to Myanmar in the last years when it's committing genocide against the Rohingya Muslim population. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. So on the face of it, you would think this is morally outrageous. How has this continued to happen? The arms industry obviously by definition is amoral with everyone. It's the most corrupt industry in the world alongside the drug industry. It's worth trillions of dollars a year globally. Israel's now the 10th biggest arms dealer in the world. And in some ways, all those years of experience occupying Palestinians is what other nations wanted to copy. So for example, you have in the 70s and 80s, some of the Latin American dirty wars, Honduras, Colombia, Guatemala, the list goes on. They openly were calling for Israeli assistance. And I've in the book various quotes from Israeli officials and local officials in those nations saying, we want to get a bit of what Israel's doing in Palestine for us because it's seen as being successful. And I use that term obviously advisedly, what successful means, but the, the occupation was being exported. And very soon Israel realised... And this, didn't, this was a bipartisan issue. It didn't really matter if it was Labor or the Likud in power in Israel. It didn't make a damn bit of difference. This was a huge money earner. And Israel could be, and I see this in the modern era, as Israel's best insurance policy in a way because despite the fact that the political headwinds 
may well shift at some point in the coming years and decades and we can discuss that. When you have so many nations around the world that are buying your defence equipment and want it and need it and are demanding it, are you likely to be very critical of Israel when it matters? You're not. And when Israel, for example, is now selling in the modern age the most sophisticated spyware and so-called smart walls, well, you know, one of the reasons I wrote the book, apart from being a journalist and wanting to do an investigation into this issue, was almost as a warning to say that in 2023 we have more refugees in the world at any time since World War II and that number is soaring. And what I fear is as many, many nations, in Western nations in the coming decades will have to face growing climate crisis refugees, resource wars refugees, they're going to have to make a pretty clear choice, including us here in Australia. Do we choose to build higher walls, metaphorically or literally, or do we welcome people in? And I think most people in this room know what is more likely to happen in many nations. And Israeli surveillance tech and repressive tech is a key part of a lot of nations already today infrastructure of keeping people out. And so the history of the occupation of Palestine, which as I said, and this is one of also what I wanted to discuss in the book, was that most conflicts in the world are geographically based in that country. So I've spent a lot of time in the last two decades reporting on the war in Afghanistan or the drug war in Latin and South America and those horrific conflicts. There's no minimising that. But they're mostly based in those areas, within those borders. The occupation of Palestine is now exported around the world. So what's happening in Palestine does not stay there. It ends up in a range of other places around the world, including here. And we can discuss that if you'd like. But there is a real sense that is Australia today is buying Israeli hacking tools, a company called Celebrite. Most people might not have heard of it. It doesn't get much attention in the press. It's basically a tool that allows authorities to hack your phone, Android or iPhone. And it's used by virtually every government department in Australia and it's used by Services Australia against welfare recipients. So it's kind of like a quasi-mini-robo-debt scenario. And the book doesn't detail that, but I've written about that elsewhere. And... I like to think that would outrage people. Since writing about this in the last sort of month or so since the book came out, I've been speaking about this in the press as much as I can, sort of almost hoping, stupidly, that someone might get upset about it and say, sorry, hang on, why are all these government departments using sophisticated Israeli hacking tools that are also, by the way, sold to the most repressive regimes in the world? Russia, China, Belarus and others. And it's mostly crickets. So Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, organisations within Israel have described Israel as an apartheid state. But a lot of people may not be aware of the historical ties between Israeli apartheid and South African apartheid. And in your book you quote, I think it's an ambassador saying that there was virtually a love affair between the security apparatus of the Israeli state and the apartheid state yeah. in South Africa. Perhaps you could talk about how that relationship developed and the extent to which it was driven by ideology or the extent to which it was driven by other factors. You know, that relationship I think is so important to understand today even though obviously apartheid South Africa ended in 1994. And the reason it's important is it was partly a defence relationship. South Africa was desperate for Israeli weapons. 
And they also wanted uranium, which thank God they didn't get, to build a nuclear bomb that Israel was trying to assist them to get. Let's just hope that that never actually happened. But it was also an ideological alignment that both nations saw their battles as a, a fight against barbarism. South Africa saw the fight against black South Africans. Israel saw it as a fight against Palestinians. And they shared each other's ideology. They shared this idea that they are on the front line of this battle for... I mean, they didn't call it white supremacy, but that's essentially what it was in the late 20th century. And right at the end of South African apartheid in 1994, when the entire world finally had turned against South Africa, which country do you think was there right till the end? Yup. Israel. I was going to say Australia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, Australia was a wonderful friend of South African apartheid too, but we turned against them before Israel. Of course we did. And Ariel Sharon, the former Israeli Prime Minister, went to South Africa at various points and often saw what South Africa was doing in so-called Bantistans, these black townships, which were, for those who don't know, kind of quasi self-governed areas which obviously were essentially controlled by the white minority state and he loved to do something similar in Palestine which is exactly what we have today. So they're inspiring each other and the reason that's relevant today apart from the obvious is that as you rightly say, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty, every single, every single Israeli human rights organisation, every single Palestinian human rights organisation call what's happening in Israel and Palestine, not just Palestine, and Israel as well, as apartheid. And in the end, the world made a long overdue decision that they were not going to tolerate anymore what South Africa was doing. Put pressure, belt boycott, sanctions, all those other tools that ended up causing South African apartheid to fold. And I would argue that something similar needs to happen with Israel today. And, of course, the hesitation of many people, maybe not in this room, but in general is the obvious. Not wanting to be seen in some circles as too critical of Israel, not wanting to be seen as too disrespectful towards Israel, not wanting to be seen to be anti-Semitic. And anti-Semitism, of course, has been weaponized against critics of Israel, something which I don't talk about so much in the book but I've talked about it extensively elsewhere where anti-Semitism is real and it's worsening and it, it's, um, there's no denying of that and Jeff and I were just talk, discussing that before we came here. It's real and I've, I mean, I don't feel that much day-to-day now but I see it often online and often people write to me in the hope of or the thought that they're being supportive of my position but actually are not a big fan of Jews which is unacceptable and anti-Semitic. But the problem is when you, as a supporter of Israel or Israel itself, weaponizes anti-Semitism, which is often what's happening now in many circles as a way to silence critics of Israel, you are delegitimizing real anti-Semitism. You make it impossible to fight the real anti-Semitism, which is real. It exists, both in Melbourne, Sydney and many places around the world. So the apartheid South Africa-Israel relationship is important for people to remember now as they have lots of detail in the book about it because it says that that relationship is not simply in the past. The modern example, very briefly, is I think the modern equivalent is Israel and India today. India is the world's biggest democracy, self-described, the world's biggest population, uh, surpassing China this year. It is 
an openly Hindu fundamentalist state that discriminates openly and proudly against roughly 200 million Muslims. And since Modi became Prime Minister in 2014, because traditionally Israel and India were not massively close friends, but that has changed in the modern era, there's been a love affair between Modi and Netanyahu. And the reason that's relevant is that you have Indian officials regularly talking about how much they admire what Israel is doing. They talk about wanting to do something similar in Kashmir to what Israel is doing in the West Bank, namely, in, in India's case, bringing in huge numbers of Hindus from the main part of India to Muslim-majority Kashmir, similarly to what Israel is doing with Jews, bringing them into Palestinian-majority West Bank. So it's partly an ideological alignment, also, I think, an admiration of Israel as a state that gets away with it, and ethno-nationalism. And this is one reason also I talked before about why I wrote the book. It's a warning that ethno-nationalism, which is what Israel is, it's an ethno-nationalist state, a proudly Jewish supremacist state, is inspiring other nations and groups around the world. It used to be apartheid South Africa back in the day, but is now countries like India and Hungary. And as I talk about in the book, the global far right. Let me finish on this point that it's disturbing and people might be a bit surprised that if you often go to far right rallies, you see with it's here, the US, Europe, you see the Israeli flag. Now these are groups that traditionally don't like Jews, are anti-Semitic, are Nazis, but love Israel. Now why is that? Now they don't like Jews, but what they love is that Israel is a proudly Jewish supremacist state and they want to create in their worldview a Christian ethno-nationalist state in Australia, the US, Europe, wherever it may be. And I quote in the book Richard Spencer, who's a very unfortunate idiot from the US and so-called alt-right leader, and he calls himself a white Zionist. And I think that's a really relevant and important quote to understand. He doesn't like Jews, but he loves what Israel's doing because he wants to do something similar in his deluded vision in the US. So the idea that Israel is inspiring people like that, and Israel as a state is not partnering with Richard Spencer, but they are partnering with far-right groups around the world. As someone who's Jewish myself, I mean, I'm non-practicing, but I'm Jewish, the idea that a Jewish state, 75 years after the Holocaust, is partnering with far-right fascists around the world in India, and Hungary and elsewhere, it's not just shameful but deeply worrying. It, it impacts all of us, Jew or non-Jew. So a related question in the book you describe an Israeli defence company showing off uh, one of its drones to a prospective set of customers by giving them footage of an assassination of a, a Palestinian and that assassination footage included the, the, the killing of civilians, including children. And it made me wonder to what extent the dehumanisation that is part and parcel of Israeli apartheid is necessary for this laboratory process that you talk about. I mean, we can talk about how products and machines and technology is tested in Palestine, but that kind of dehumanisation, how significant is that to the whole process? It's really important and 
it's reflected in so many ways in daily Israeli life. I mean, I lived for a number of years in East Jerusalem and I've been visiting Israel-Palestine for close to 20 years, reporting from Israel and the West Bank and Gaza. And you see in Israel proper, so with the, and the Jewish population, there's a sense, I think, in the West that, oh, there's so much robust debate in Israel. You hear this in the media all the time, it's complete bullshit. There's not. There is a general consensus in much of the Israeli Jewish population and, although until recently it's changing a little bit now, the Jewish diaspora population, that what Israel's doing is not just justified but necessary. And what is reflected in that is a few things. One, most studies are showing that the young Israeli Jews are becoming far more far-right far more extreme, which is reflected in their voting patterns and other ways of living their lives, far more religious. Uh, Orthodox Jews, obviously there are a multitude of views in the Orthodox Jewish community, but within Israel itself, with some exceptions, very, very strong supporters of the, of the state and very strong supporters of the settler movement. Not all, but most. And the way that dehumanisation works is a very simple one. The occupation doesn't really exist. The only time the occupation comes up as a story is in the framing of a security so-called problem for Israel. So Palestinians are largely ignored, dehumanised, not given a voice and silenced. And the narrative which is told within Israel, the Jewish side, and in much of the Jewish diaspora, although it is changing, is the world has always hated us and they're always going to hate us. And if you believe that narrative, then regardless of what you do, you're obviously right because whatever we do, everyone's going to hate us anyway. And in some ways, it's not surprising a lot of Israeli Jews think that because the world is allowing this to go on. It's not like there's huge boycott movements. I mean, I support the boycott movement against Israel and sanctions and divestment, but it's not as if that's stopping Israeli behaviour. So the dehumanisation of Palestinians, which existed for decades and got way worse after 9-11, I talk about that a lot in the book, that Israel in some ways wrote the playbook for the war on terror. What the US did after 9-11 obviously had its own horrible nuance, if you can call it nuance, but Israel wrote that playbook decades before. The language of the war on terror the ways in which Arabs, Palestinians, Muslims are dehumanised, the language that we hear, collateral damage, all that language, the Israel was doing years before the US. And that dehumanisation is central to understanding why so many Israeli Jews, obviously not all, there is an Israeli left. It's about four people. <laughs> I mean, I'm sadly joking, but there's maybe 10 people. It's really small and there are some amazingly Israeli Jewish groups and individuals who are doing incredible work. It's not by any means to diminish what they're doing. But they are protesting and advocating and supporting Palestinians and it's not at all to criticise them. But it's to acknowledge, as they themselves say to me and others, this will not change without outside pressure. You know, white South Africans didn't wake up one day and say, geez, apartheid's pretty terrible, really better end it. No, they ended it. There were some South Africans who opposed it, of course, bravely. But the vast majority were happy for it to continue because international pressure gave them a choice. You either continue as you are and be a pariah state or you evolve. And I think in many ways there's kind of this 
I would call it arrogance or ignorance or blindness. There are Israeli journalists who are doing amazing work, some work in Haaretz. Good friend of mine, Gideon Levy, who's an amazing journalist and writer and Jewish columnist for Haaretz, who does incredible work, who goes every week into the West Bank, which on the face of it's not revolutionary by any means, but virtually no other Israelis are doing it, and writes a column about what he's seeing and uh, detailing some horrible event where a Palestinian's been killed or maimed or injured. And he often says to me, no one's reading it. I mean, he's being a bit facetious. Some people are reading it, but virtually no one's reading it. I'm writing it so people can say, you can't say you didn't know. Now, does that stop the occupation? No. I mean, it's not a criticism of him. It, it's not stopping the occupation, but it's making people aware of what's going on. So the dehumanisation is really central to why the occupation can continue because, let's face it, the majority of Israeli Jews are serving in the military. I mean, they're in the West Bank regularly, at least when they're younger and often when they're older. And they're seeing, not just seeing what's going on, they're participating in what's going on in that dehumanisation and those inhumane arrests and the killings, all that. So a bit more of a theoretical question. Early in its history, the Israeli state played a major role in driving the Israeli economy, which was heavily centralised and planned to some degree. Israel, like so many other countries, went through a neoliberal turn. In terms of what you're talking about in this book, the export of repressive technology, to what degree is that a project of the Israeli state and to what degree is that a project of private capital? Is it being done for strategic interests? Is it being done for profit? Is it some combination of those two? It's a combination and it's strange in a way to look back now and think that for many on the left for years, Israel was seen as a socialist paradise. From 1948 to 1967, it's changed a lot to put it mildly since then. A lot of people on the left globally saw Israel as this amazing model. They went to the kibbutzes, they were living these incredible, so they thought, leftist lives and it was all bullshit because Palestinians were mostly either invisible or under a form of military occupation from day one of Israel's birth. So without wishing to interrogate the left from back in the day, sorry, you got that wrong... But that's changed and obviously much of the left now sees that differently. The arms industry, I think, in Israel is uh, no doubt a, a key part of how the state projects its power. As I said before, it's a way to, I think, insulate itself from potential political headwinds that may come in years to come because a lot of people in the Israeli elites, they realise a lot of the world doesn't like what they're doing in Palestine. They're not totally delusional. They realise that. They say it publicly and privately. And the book is full of lots of these declassified documents which I've attained which talk about some of these quotes from Israeli officials over the decades, which are particularly since 1967, which acknowledge that there's a real almost public, you know, PR problem here. But if you're selling as a state all this technology and tools of repression to so many other nations around the world, you are seen as an invaluable nation. You're seen as a state that is needed and in the modern era that is obviously shifted from not just old defence technology but to 
drones and spyware and a range of other tools. And what I talk about in the book is that all these so-called private Israeli defence companies that you may have heard of, NSO Group that did Pegasus, which is the infamous spyware company, they're only private in name. They're essentially arms of the state. So you have in the last, say, decade and a half, Netanyahu, who's been prime minister seemingly forever, and the Mossad, the Israeli intelligence, going to countries and holding out these tools as a diplomatic carrot and saying, we'd like to be friends with you. You want to be friends with us. I'm talking about nations like UAE and Saudi and Rwanda and a lot of other horribly repressive regimes. And we will sell you this spyware that you can repress your own people if you, for example, alter your UN votes or hold back from being too critical. And it works. Yes, as we said before, the UN votes are generally most of the world on one side and six nations on the other side. But in general, that criticism is muted at best. And just two weeks ago, Israel released its figures for 2022 for its arms sales. 12.5 billion US, the biggest in its history, 25% of which was the Arab world. So we're talking about UAE, Bahrain, Morocco, Saudi, when Israel says we're the only democracy in the Middle East, which A, is bullshit unless you're Jewish, but secondly, you're supporting Arab autocracies to repress their own people with your own spyware and various other tools of repression. So I see Israeli repressive occupation tech as a danger to all of us. It's a danger to all of us because it's actually repressing huge numbers of peoples around the world and that thus far, at least, there's been no accountability whatsoever for it. I guess it's another historical irony, but the UN Refugee Convention was developed out of horror at the unwillingness of the world to take refugees from Nazi Germany. And over recent decades, we've seen the Refugee Convention increasingly flouted in practice, if not in theory, in the book, you describe the role of Israeli technology in the Mediterranean, where there was recently a horrific loss of deaths. Perhaps you can talk about that. I mean, you've touched on this already, yeah. but I feel it's such a sort of awful historical irony that it's probably worth yeah. reiterating. This is one of the things that I don't easily get shocked these days, but this issue, I've been doing some work on this issue of the involvement of Israeli drones in the Mediterranean in the last few years. Just can we briefly explain what's going on there? So after 2015, when the EU, in their view, were overwhelmed with refugees, obviously Germany took in a million refugees, but much of the rest of Europe did not want to repeat that again. Although, to be clear, we're talking about brown and black and Muslim bodies. They're not so concerned about Ukrainians. And for the record, I think we should welcome Ukrainians in. But the issue is not if you're white and Christian. The issue is if you're black, brown or Muslim. So the EU has created a fortress-type Europe in the last decade, a bit less. And a key part of that infrastructure are Israeli drones. Now, they're unarmed. They have been used across the Mediterranean 24-7 for a number of years now. They're essentially the eyes in the sky for Frontex, which is the border so-called security arm of the EU. And they feed what they're seeing back to Warsaw, which is the headquarters of Frontex. And the EU has made a decision, of course they don't acknowledge this, but this is the truth, they've made the decision to not rescue people anymore. They've made a decision to let people drown. 
That's the decision that they've made. There are very few rescue boats anymore in the Mediterranean. There are a handful of NGOs doing amazing work to rescue people, but they're a drop in the ocean. So the Israeli drones are playing a key part in essentially showing to European officials what they're allowing to drown, who they're allowing to die. And these drones that the EU are using have been battle-tested in Gaza. Over Gaza in the last 15 years or so in various wars in, from 2008 onwards, there's been about five or six of them. And it seems to me that the involvement of major Israeli defence companies and drones over the Mediterranean speaks volumes about what you're saying before, that, you know, that recent horrific... I mean, I don't, I don't really see it as an accident. I see that in some ways as, as murder, what happened in the Mediterranean, that we had maybe five, six, seven, eight hundred refugees drowning. It seems pretty clear, and I've done... This obviously is not in the book, but I've been doing some research on this, at Frontex using Israeli drones, and they said this even in a press release, they were seeing what was going on. They saw what was going on. The Greek officials have made a decision. The EU has made a decision. And it's hard to hear this, to let people die. That's the message. The message ideally being it'll be a deterrent. Sounds familiar to what Australia's been doing for the last 20, 30 years? Indeed. This goes, I think, to the heart of Israel's really key role in what I call, and I'm not the only one to say, is the border surveillance industrial industry. And it's not dissimilar to the presence of Israeli surveillance towers along the US-Mexico border. Another key site globally of huge numbers of migrants trying to get into the US from nations in Latin and South America that have been destabilised by the US. And Elbert, which often is providing... It's Israel's biggest defence company, had tested these so-called smart walls and surveillance towers across the West Bank and across the Israel-Gaza border and it's now appearing on the US-Mexico border. And the reason the US bought that technology was because it had been tested in Palestine. That's why they buy it. So again, the Mediterranean, US-Mexico border, these key places of migration around the world, Israeli repressive tech ends up having a presence there. It's not the only thing the EU or the US uses, but it's a key part of it. And it seems that there's so little discussion about it, acknowledgement of it, accountability for it. And I think it's partly, I think, as Tony's writing the book, is making people know that it even happens. So obviously the border between the United States and Mexico was a key issue for the Trump administration with the, yeah. the so-called wall mm. and so forth. So, so your reference to the role of Israeli technology in that raises another question, I guess, which is the extent to which the export of Israeli technology depends on political alignments. Does it make a difference, whether it's a Trump or whether it's a Biden, are these agreements always just marriages of convenience? I mean, you're talking before about ideologically simpatico regimes. How significant is that? Or is everyone just saying, this stuff works, we're going to do it? Yes. There obviously is a difference between Trump and Biden on lots of issues. I don't want to suggest they're exactly the same. doesn't matter if you're American, if you vote for one or the other next year, God help us. There is a difference. However, when it comes to the US-Mexico border, there's a lot less difference than people on the left might like to think. That the beginnings of Israeli involvement started before Trump 
and they've been accelerated after Trump. So what Biden's so-called border plan is to make it much more high-tech, not so much trying to build a, frankly, ridiculous high wall that Trump was seemingly obsessed with and would no doubt continue if he became president again, which is a beautiful thought for next year, but is interested in massive high-tech tools to maintain, in their view, kind of a US supremacy within its own borders. So Biden has accelerated that, has deepened that. In fact, the amount of money that the US Customs and Border are spending has never been higher under Biden. Under Biden. So I think many people are mistakenly not seduced by them. I think it is, well, I think it is a bit of a myth. It's a myth that Trump was uniquely awful. He was awful on so many issues. It's not a weird defence of Trump, don't worry. However, on a lot of these kinds of issues, there is remarkably little difference between what the Democrats and Republicans are doing or, for that matter, what the Liberal or Labor Party are doing here on Israel-Palestine. On other issues, of course there are differences. Morrison's not Albanese. But on issues like Israel-Palestine, on a lot of foreign policy, there ain't much difference. In fact, you can arguably say that Labor, in fact, has accelerated what Morrison was doing with AUKUS and other issues. Proudly so. The fear to me is not so much who's going to win next year in the US. Obviously, the choice is between an increasingly senile man and an increasingly crazy man. It's an amazing choice. An amazing choice for the world's supposed the greatest democracy. But it's on issues like border security, if you can call it that, there is going to be, I think, a deepening and a hardening of that kind of technology because, as we were saying before, when the Western world is facing, as it is increasingly already doing and will face even more in decades to come, growing amounts of refugees, people who want to flee nations that have had massive climate change or resource war issues often caused by the demand of those resources from us in the West, we have a choice about how we respond to that we being Western countries. And the signs thus far are not great that it's going to be particularly welcoming with open arms. And Israeli tech is part of that. Whether it's Biden or Trump or Albanese or Morrison or Rishi Sunak or Keir Starmer, God help us. It doesn't... Like, this is a problem with the glorious two-party system. Don't we love it? This can seem like quite a um, grim... Discussion, and I wanted to see if we could draw Grim. Some, what <laughs> something no <laughs> something positive out of it. And it seems to me that it's very easy for people in Australia to see supporting Palestine as almost a charitable obligation. This is something that we in Australia do to help the Palestinian people when they're suffering. And of course, that's important. But it seems to me that your book opens up the possibility of a different argument, which is what's happening in Israel has consequences for all of us. And a blow against the Israeli apartheid state then becomes a blow against oppression yes. all around the world, which makes the prospects for resistance far greater. So I wonder if you could talk about that and how this might align with the global movement for boycott, divestment and sa sanctions? The current Israeli government is doing wonders for this movement. 
and it's doing wonders because Israel is now ruled by a Netanyahu as the prime minister, but he's actually very moderate compared to some of the other crazy lunatics in that cabinet who are openly advocating for ethnic cleansing. You have Israeli settlers, Jewish settlers, proudly, proudly committing pogroms against Muslims in the West Bank. There is no real accreditation for them. In fact, I just saw before I came today that the police minister, Ben Gavir, called those settlers who committed pogroms sweet boys. That was his quote. Like, this is what we're dealing with. It's not a democracy. And what I think is happening in many parts of the world, and this is where it comes to the point of a little bit of hope, which I do talk about in the book, in many nations around the world, US, Australia, parts of Europe, there's been a real fundamental shift in public opinion in the last years. Not everywhere, not every community. To the point where this year, for example, in the US, for the first time ever, according to a Pew poll, the majority of Democratic voters were far more sympathetic to Palestinians than Israelis. That is significant. There's a growing Jewish insurgency within their own communities in Australia, in the US and elsewhere to say, not in my name. I cannot, as a Jew, I'm not just talking about me personally, but as a Jewish community, we cannot support what is happening in Israel simply because I'm Jewish and simply because maybe my grandfather was in Auschwitz. This is not okay anymore. I cannot support a regime that commits pogroms against Muslims. I mean, come on. And I think the impact of that is obviously always hard to know how that plays out politically, but it is causing growing amounts of pressure on the political left and the political centre. The Greens in Australia recently released... I'm not a member of the party, so this is not a free plug, but the Greens recently released a new Israel-Palestine policy, which was actually pretty damn good, which was acknowledging that a, a two-state solution is dead, talking much more about military boycott, acknowledging the fact that Israel is an apartheid state. Call it out. It's important. And by doing that, you put pressure on other political actors. And the reason I think there's so much interest in the issue of Palestine, not just in this room but in general, is what's happening in Palestine isn't just about Palestine. It is about US foreign policy and imperialism and global repression, which is being exported, that impacts billions of people around the world. And I think in some ways how that seemingly overwhelming battle is fought is partly about boycott and divestment and sanctions, what was happening against apartheid South Africa back in the day. It is supported by a Palestinian civil society across the board. It is putting pressure on political leaders and politicians to not just mouth platitudes about supporting the wonders of Israeli democracy, including, I might add, the Premier of this state who recently was just expressing absolutely embarrassing shit about Israel. It's a glorious democracy and I love it so much and how dare you criticise. I mean, this is either willful ignorance or stupidity. Who knows what it is with your Premier? I don't know. But it seems to me that putting pressure on politicians to acknowledge that, to cut military ties, nothing that's that complicated to do, you'd think. Putting pressure in the US, which obviously is where this matters in some ways most, you do now have in the Congress, not a lot, but roughly 10 congressmen and women who do call for cutting military ties, who do call for far more accountability. Things are shifting. 
and just finally on this point, the challenge of dealing with that is that many hardline Israeli Jews and the Israel lobby and others are often saying now, well, you know what, if liberal Jews walk away, it doesn't matter. If they're getting soft, we'll just go to evangelicals who are loving Israel a lot. And that's not ideal. But I do think there is an awareness that there needs to be a political movement, that what's happening in Palestine is not just about that issue. It is a far broader struggle that I think we need to connect other issues together to fight that battle. Something I talk about in the book, actually, is the growing Palestinianization of vast parts of the world, actually, that what, for example, is happening in Gaza, which essentially is 2.2 million Palestinians, uh, an Israeli and Egyptian blockade, which is it's the world's biggest open-air prison that have spent time in Gaza and a lot of people are profoundly suffering in that area, that the idea that you can treat people like that in vast other parts of the world is seen as attractive to many other countries. It's not unique to Palestine. Obviously, there's repression in lots of other places. And it seems to me that the idea of a exportable Palestine, not just talking about the repression, but the ways in which Palestinians are viewed as suspects, as not being treated as equal citizens, is something I think that many people around the world, and I talk about this in the book and others are saying this as well, is becoming something that resonates. In other words, this is not to demean or belittle Palestinians, not at all. It's to actually admire, A, their resistance for 75 years to what's been going on, but secondly, an awareness that, as others have argued, it's a global Palestine. What's happening in Palestine is being exported, not just the weapons, not just the spyware, not just the awful technology. I'm talking about the ways in which they're treated, the ways in which they're not seen as equal citizen. And all, a lot of other countries can apply that to their own citizens, not just, you know, whatever the country may be. And I think to make more people aware of that growing Palestinianization of parts of the world and see that as a something to fight back against, that separation between the rich and poor, it's never been bigger. And just on that point, finally, the irony is Israel is the most unequal nation in the OECD. 25% of Israeli Jews, putting aside Palestinians, live in poverty. A quarter of Israeli kids are living in poverty. Putting aside Palestinians in Palestine, I'm talking about Israeli Jews. That so-called neoliberal dream ain't helping a lot of people yet or ever. Look, I think BDS has had some success. I'm not going to suggest, and this is not by any means to criticise those who have push for BDS here and elsewhere. I think in some parts of the world, in fact, it is having success. I think within the Israeli Jewish population, there is a lot of insecurity and fear about BDS growing. You see that, you hear that, I speak to people about that. There is a growing sense, I think, of having to challenge the weaponization of anti-Semitism. That, I think, has been a very effective weapon against BDS. And, of course, also, let's face it, in the US, in countless dozens of states now, the UK is proposing the same thing, and frankly, I'm surprised it hasn't been proposed here, to try to outlaw BDS, to make it against the law for a local council or a local government to boycott an Israeli company or institution. Um, It hasn't happened here yet. I think it will, or there'll be an attempt to do it here at some point, by Labor or Liberal, 
I think it could be Labor. And the UK, they're currently having this discussion. The Tory government has put this forward as a proposition. So to me, I see that as a fear of the threat. I see that as a sign of its success. BDS on its own doesn't end what's happening in Palestine. You know, you speak to apartheid South African activists from the ANC, for example, in Africa, South Africa. They will say to you, it wasn't because musician X didn't play in Cape Town that this ended, but it was a key part of it. And people often forget because we're so used to it, a massively accelerated life, everything is moving so fast. So to get to the movement to end South African apartheid took decades and decades and decades. Not that that really helps Palestinians now who deserve to be free yesterday, but I think it is growing here. And I think in Australia, for example, the most obvious way to fight this is to me cutting military ties. That's obviously a governmental level rather than an individual level. And this is what I said the Greens are proposing and I think are going to be advocating far stronger with their new policy. And I think that pressure needs to go much harder on the Labor Party who are now in government, who frankly have some members who are saying that they will... I mean, even the idea of recognising Palestine, which Labor has said they will do, which is a really weak-as-hell proposal anyway, even that's seen as too difficult. They need to be pressured and harangued about that. Hard. The Liberals are mostly a lost cause on this, but they're not in government now, really anywhere. Labor is. The Palestine Laboratory is available from all leading stores and from our website, where you'll find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of this land and pay respect to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you.